My name is Dr. Nate Shannock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Els for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not part of the podcast, I'm a member of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like Clue. I am also autistic, and I really do appreciate the taste of fine wine. This is our 22nd episode of the podcast, Healing Perspectives with Special Guests, Dr. Kimberly Watterson-Riviccio, our mental health counselor, and me, Merrick Egbert, our chair of the advisory board for the Els for Autism Foundation. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories that play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our Today in the World of Autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Also check our show notes for websites, resources, and other groovy things we would like to have on the written record for all of you for autism fans. Here are some news and updates about the foundation. First item, episode 21. Tune into our last episode, episode 21, where we talked to Deb Hodes, um, volunteer and donor extraordinaire. In that episode, she speaks about end-of-year giving, talks about her donations, and why it is so important to support a foundation like this one. Make sure to listen to the whole program to get an idea of what we were doing as a foundation during that time and learn something new about the autism community for our Today in the World of Autism segment. So for this new year, we have started up our sports and reach and teach for the arts programs yet again. Please check our website for further details. Programs include interability course, tennis, music therapy, and dance. And as we have new programs, we also have new volunteer positions. On our website, you will find all available positions and a way to apply to any of these. Positions include golf, yoga, tennis, and dance. Since our theme in January is about mental health and I am the first advisory board member to be interviewed, I thought why not write an article about my empowering experiences since becoming a staff member of the Els for Autism Foundation. Every month, I usually write a new article for our part of the blogosphere, which you can find on our website. Now, on to the interview. All right, everyone. Since January is the beginning of a new year, it is also the start of figuring out what you must do to approach this new beginning. And what better thing to approach first than mental health? For our second appearance on this program, we would like to welcome back our mental health counselor, Dr. Kim Watterson-Riviccio. Prior to working as part of our mental health team, she had been the coordinator of our fabulous Goals Global Outreach Autism Learning Services Program, which would provide help to potential clients and families from all over the world. While she did great as a Goals Coordinator, her background has a strong concentration in school and mental health counseling being a counselor in the school system and an advocate for those with special needs. 
Because of that, her transfer to her current role as a mental health counselor has been seamless. From her one to online sessions, to her facilitation work for our support groups, teens and adults, siblings and families, with a sibling group called Sam Sibs Stick Together, which is a virtual room that supports siblings of those on the autism spectrum. You can also find her giving out her stress management tips on our YouTube channel. Thanks, Dr. Kimberly Riviccio. It's a pleasure having you on our program again. Thank you very much, Merrick. I appreciate that warm welcome and introduction. Okay. So I would like to start out with my questions first that I would like to ask you. So here's my first question. In your line of work, what are the most common mental health challenges that you see from individuals with autism? It's a great question. I think, you know, we can name some that, that we tend to see that um, both individuals with autism and those without the diagnosis of autism tend to share. Um, but before we talk about those, I think the overwhelming need is the need for acceptance and understanding. I think the, um, you know, when we talk about mental health, we look at the individual a lot of times and, you know, what, what goals they might have and what they want to work on, but it would be really nice and lovely. And I think part of the, the plight is for the community to have a better understanding and acceptance and compassion. I think that would help um, sort of meet us halfway. Okay, uh, sorry. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. Continue. No, that, no, did you have something? That's okay. I can, you know, I can also mention some of the other things that we see, but I feel like we can't go into those without just recognizing the need for acceptance, understanding, and education. Um, you know, because we're all interacting, whether it's on the job or in school with the teacher or with the basketball coach. Um, with the therapist um, and, you know, different agencies. So I think that the understanding coming in would be really a very valuable piece. Uh, and of course, we also see the symptoms of anxiety and depression and adjustment um, to different roles in their life, in people's lives. We also see obsessive compulsive symptoms sometimes, um, you know, everyone being different. So someone might be really managing depressive symptoms more or, um, you know, social skills, needing help with social skills or social problem solving, understanding healthy versus unhealthy relationships and things like that. Um, those are some of the most common things that we see. Yeah. And those are definitely uh, very uh, important uh, topics to target when focusing on mental health challenges. So um, I'm going to deviate over to an expert on these areas. What are your thoughts on managing and diffusing these areas? I think, you know, the first step, if, if you're working with a therapist, is finding a good fit, finding the right therapist. And, you know, when we come in and, and the person is experiencing sadness or or anxiety symptoms, they're looking for immediate relief. You know, they've probably been suffering with those symptoms for a while. So you're hoping that, you know, this person's going to help you. And so if you feel like this isn't a good fit, I think sometimes finding that right fit for you is essential. 
so I think that's important to note. So when once you find that person, I think having someone with good listening skills who is there to support you and know that you're held in high regard allows the person the chance to sort of have this catharsis and to share, share their feelings and share their thoughts in a safe environment and have that connection with that person and have that relationship. I think that that's the, the starting point. You know, there's different strategies, of course, that we can implement as well. But I think that that's, you know, the, the basis. Okay. And speaking of therapy, um, I will have to acknowledge that understanding each session is unique to the individual engaged in therapy. So what strategies have you found to make the greatest difference? Yes, I think, you know, looking at the person and what their own goals are um, and not implying my goals or, or their family members' goals. Of course, we can all have, our, have input, but looking at what the person is, if they're an adult, or what the person is seeking out and what they are looking for out of the therapy. Uh, so setting the goals and having an idea of where we're headed. Uh, some of the strategies, you know, we use a lot of cognitive behavior strategies or called CBT. Uh, and that is, you know, what we, what we utilize most often in our department. Um, we like that because it's an evidence-based strategy and it, it has been shown to be effective with anxiety, depression, OCD, things like that. Uh, I, I think, you know, last time we, we talked a little bit about cognitive behavior therapy and, um, I can, you know, I can elaborate on that some more if you would like. Um, you, I would feel free for you to um, allow you to go ahead. Sure. Okay. Um, cognitive behavior therapy basically is looking at the relationship between what we think, how we feel, and how we act, how we then in turn act on those thoughts and feelings. And if, if we feel depression or feel anxiety as a result. So the, the thought behind it is that we all have these sort of automatic thoughts. And sometimes our thoughts are um, automatic negative thoughts, or they are an unhealthy pattern of thinking. Um, for example, we think that we have to be perfection, you know, we have to be perfect and perfectionistic in what we're doing, or we might um, think that if one bad thing happens to us, that the whole year, the whole day, the whole week is going to be a catastrophe. So there's several different ones that as a therapist, you can help the person identify. And once you help them to identify that they're doing that, they then rewrite, they, they set a new thought process that's more helpful. Um, so that is what the relationship is with the cognitive behavior therapy. You're sort of rewriting the scripts in your head that are automatic that sometimes we don't even realize we're doing. And so the therapist helps to guide the client in that process. So that's one thing that can be helpful. Like for example, with obsessive compulsive behaviors or symptoms um, that we see in children, we see in adults, uh, you know, a lot of times the, the natural instinct is to sort of talk the person out of that and rationalize with them and say, you know, that's not a logical thought that you have to do something repeatedly, but those, you know, that might be sort of something that we do as from an amateur perspective, but a, a skilled clinician would be able to help that person recognize 
where those thoughts are coming from and, you know, help them sort of talk back to their thoughts. You know, it sounds funny to say, talk back to your brain, talk back to it. But those are the sort of um, techniques that we would implement and different exercises to practice. You know, we might do actual um, practice in the session to sort of combat that, you know, that worry bully that can, that can often, you know, show up in all of our lives. You know, we also, some of the other strategies are social skills training and social thinking, how to solve problems, social problems. You know, we know that a lot of things that we experience are concrete, but social skills are not concrete. They're always changing. So interacting with different people is really complicated. You know, we can say that for, for all of us. So we'll practice some of those scenarios sometimes in sessions or help the person to come up with different strategies and um, different social skills. And of course, just general coping strategies, you know, ways to cope with those difficult moments in life. So um, what benefits have you seen individuals with autism experience as a result of mental health counseling? Oh, that's the good stuff, right? We love to see skills develop and um, people feel better. Um, that's the, the ultimate goal. Uh, you know, I think, I think seeing people experience support is really powerful. I love seeing that in our groups. Um, you know, people supporting each other, knowing you're not alone has such a powerful influence. And um, I think that that would be the first thing is just having that support and having that person to vent, bounce ideas off of, try new ideas, try new things. Uh, you know, so you see, you see those skills develop and new ways to communicate your feelings, um, new ways to advocate for yourself. And, and um, I see a lot of clients develop those skills and it's quite, quite a, a gift. So um, before we get over to Nate's questions, um, how many providers with experience in, in autism and mental health would you say there are? And after you answer that, what would you say to people who may be interested in having experiences in both? Oh, yes, that's that's an excellent question. And, you know, the fact if you Google something like how many mental health counselors specialize in autism, I don't think you'll come up with a direct answer. I think that that shows the need for more work in that in the area of mental health and autism. Um, if you, you know, if you look at how many, say, mental health counselors there are licensed, licensed mental health counselors in the state of Florida, I think there's somewhere near 12,000 in mental health. Um, you also have additional counselors in school counseling or marriage and family or rehabilitation, uh, you know, but you won't see this sort of special you know, description or delineation that they specialize in autism. So I think there's definitely a need for more work in this area, um, more awareness, more research. Um, and, you know, uh, to answer the second part, I, I would love for people who are interested to come on board and get involved. It's one of the most rewarding things that I've ever experienced. And, um, I, you know, I would say to spend time getting to know what individuals with autism need, what their strengths are, um, and just, you know, 
learn more about the learning style because we do have, you know, people that will come in who felt like they haven't found that right fit yet. They're looking for someone who understands their learning style and a therapist that knows sort of their best way of learning and to be able to um, understand them really well. Everyone wants that. So I would say come on board and, um, you know, get to know, get to know the population and, um, and the best strategies to help. I would think that more and more people um, would probably specialize in more of the, I guess you'd call it a duality of both um, because of the broadening of the definition of what autism is. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, is that, you know, there are many, many people with autism who have had a history of being bullied or they've had a history of being mocked and the like. And the fact that um, that these kinds of uh, awareness, uh, you know, notes and everything, and the fact that, you know, someone can be um, classified as having, uh, you know, fewer supports, but they'll still need uh, some sort of, uh, you know, mental health support to get them through the day. Um, I think that um, with everything uh, evolving in the way it's becoming, um, you will definitely have a need for more and more people specializing in both. You know, it's, it's, it's not exactly something in which you just send someone to an institution and call it a day anymore. You have people of all sorts of shapes, sizes, you know, all sorts of minds and the like, and you have to sort of, you know, figure out what is, what is it is that will help the person live the best life that they can not just, you know, because they may have a job or because they may have, you know, someone who they're friends with or their family loves them or something like that, but, but also uh, some form of mental health, um, you know, solvability to, to the whole thing. I think um, you, you put that perfectly. Sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't. Please That's continue. okay. I, I just, I, I don't want to stop your thought. I, I think that you say that perfectly, you know, this sort of myth buster that people don't quite understand um, and you're speaking to the individual. So um, I think that's a really excellent point, Merrick. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for that. A uh, little bit of my uh, two cents uh, with inflation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. It's very valuable. And, you know, it, it reminds me of the, the expression I heard early in my, in the field and the, in my work was, you know, once you've met one person with autism, you've yeah. met one person with autism. I think there's such a need and you really hit upon that perfectly to just understand the individual and don't assume, um, yeah. and don't, you know, cluster people into groups. I think that, you know, that's really valuable. And I appreciate that. And that is so much. Yeah, and I learn about that every single day and 
every bit of exposure to people who have the same condition that I have, it, it always is a new experience. Anyways, um, I'd like to welcome my co-host, uh, Dr. Shanak, to the question to the Q and A with uh, Dr. Ravicio. Um, uh, Nate, we just went through all of my questions, and I introduced Dr. Ravicio. So I guess in the nomenclature of the day, it's your turn to ask the questions of Dr. Ravicio. Oh, perfect. Well, it's great to be here and, and great to have you, Dr. Avicio. Thank you again. Thank you for having me on, Dr. Shanak. It's always a fun time, <laughs> and I really enjoy chatting with both of you. And your timing was perfect. We were just transitioning to your questions, and Merrick and I had a really uh, lovely time talking about um, you know, we were just kind of to bring you up to speed. Merrick was sharing how important it is to recognize the individual and, you know, with autism and recognize that not everyone is the same. And we were just sort of talking about myth busters and things like that. So um, it was really, really great to, to chat with him. Awesome. Well, I, I can't wait to listen back to this and, and get the full scoop of the conversation. <laughs> Sounds so good. I was hoping to take the conversation in a little bit different of a direction. And I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, what mental health practices you would recommend for parents of an individual with autism who may be feeling some burnout or just dealing with some chronic stress? Mm, it's so important. It, I think it's so important to treat the entire family when we talk about autism services. And I, you know, I think I'm really excited that we're doing that at the Alzheimer's Autism Foundation with our sibling program and, um, you know, looking at the entire family and supporting the entire family as well as the individual. So I think that's an, a, you know, an excellent topic. I think, you know, various mental health practices can be helpful to the family or to the parents. You know, first stepping aside and, you know, taking a breather <laughs> and, uh, sometimes we have to adjust our expectations. And by that, I don't mean, you know, necessarily only the expectations of the child or individual, but of ourselves. You know, I, I come across so many parents and they're so full of emotion and they want to do everything they possibly can. And sometimes they forget that they're human and, you know, not all day, every day, 100% of the time, can we implement interventions and strategies and therapy? Um, sometimes we need to give ourselves a minute and give ourselves a break and allow ourselves to mess up and make mistakes. Uh, and by doing that, we're showing our family and our children that we're learning too, and that we can redo that moment if we need to and sort of change course. So I think looking at our expectations is really important. And I think knowing that you're not alone again, we, you know, Merrick and I talked about that a minute ago, like the power of a group. So I would say, establish your team, you know, and that might not mean, like I said, every, every day is therapy, but you have a team, you have different professionals and um, in the area that can support you and support your family and your child. Um, and I think within that could, could be other parents as well. Um, having the support of a group. And then, you know, lastly, there's always finding your own relaxation methods, your own 
you know, self-care, whether that's mindfulness, you know, techniques or yoga or meditation or, you know, running or an exercise or um, some people find music to be helpful. Um, You know, whatever your own, I think most people know what they are, you know, right away they could say, well, if I had free time, I would. Yeah. (laughs) When you fill in the blank, you know, it it might mean starting small, um, starting with five minutes a day of whatever that activity is and um, making it attainable. Again, that goes back to adjusting the expectations and being realistic with yourself. Yeah. I think that that advice is so uh, well expressed and, and yeah, just, you know, it's often, I think it's often forgotten that part of a successful daily schedule is not just all the exercises or all of the, you know, uh, what we would call work um, that a person would be doing. And, you know, not that childcare or spending time with family um, is work by any stretch, but just making sure that, you know, as an individual, you do have a little bit of time to, uh, to kick back and um, just do whatever it is, that activity or that exercise that helps you to feel rejuvenated. Mm-hmm. I think so. And I think therapies should feel natural and it takes practice to get there, but I think good therapy will be implemented into your natural day and it it can evolve into feeling more um, natural and not so much like work ideally yeah. mm-hmm. for sure oh, sorry to interrupt in this but wouldn't a program like uh, the ruby parent training program also be conducive to uh instituting greater mental health practices for parents um because not only uh does it train parents in order to, you know, be more adaptive to what their kids are doing who have autism, but it also somewhat groups them together so that if they ever need help from any, from, you know, other parents, um, in a way, it's like almost like a, a parent network that's being created through the Ruby Parent Training Program. Am I correct in any of that? Yes, you are on point. I think that's an excellent point. Thank you, Merrick, for for reminding me to talk about our Ruby program because I think it is. It's it provides if it's you know in the group setting, it can provide this natural group support with other parents, and the skills that are presented are so very valuable. For those of you who don't know what the Ruby Parent Training Program is, it's provided at the Els for Autism Foundation, and it um, helps teach parents ways to. Um, respond ways to um, help children and help their family when there's challenging behaviors. So it, it takes you through an 11 week process and it presents different skills and strategies. Um, you know, strong emphasis is on preventing and, you know, setting up um, an environment that helps your child. So I think that's one, that's an excellent, excellent answer. It's supportive and it's informational you're able to practice the skills um, and learn from each other. I think that's an excellent point. Thank you so much, Merrick. And that also reminds me to, you know, mention our sibling support program. Um, That's really this, you know, since the pandemic started and we were all sent home, right? We needed to look at ways to support families and our Sam Sibs Stick Together is a um, virtual support group 
for siblings of those with autism spectrum disorders. And uh, it's, it's a really powerful way for siblings to connect and to, um, to talk. And uh, that's another way that I think it, you know, the question is really for parents, but I think that they, that is something that's helpful for parents when they know that they're able to get support for the, for the sibling as well. Yeah, absolutely. And on the topic of social support, um, my next question is related to group therapy. And so as far as, you know, we know that a lot of therapy sessions are now being done through telehealth, but I was curious, as far as group therapy is concerned, what are some strategies that you have for maintaining and even maximizing social engagement just because it's a little bit different of an environment, but it's still really important to maximize um, the, the ability for us to, um, to feel supported and, and not alone in some of the challenges. Absolutely. When, when we went to virtual and virtual groups, we all had to really learn new skills and new strategies and techniques. And well, technology, right? We had to really get to know it really well. And um, I always say my teens taught me so much, you know, my teens, and personally, I have teens, but also in the group setting, you know, learning how to navigate the zoom and do fun things on zoom. So um, I credit them for so much of my learning and going through the process with me and with our team. Uh, group therapy is, is so wonderful, so powerful, and it sort of takes on a life of its own once it's run um, once the group is facilitated well and the group gets to know each other, it's a beautiful like evolution and they really take it and run with it. Um, but I think it's helpful to go in with somewhat of an agenda for the group, um, somewhat of structure, you know, even if it's like a introduction, a check-in with each person, a lot of times we'll go around and check in and then we might have an activity or a presentation of a skill that, that we see there's a need or it's come up, the, the group members have expressed a need for this skill. So we might, you know, have a little bit of a presentation of information and chatting, but we've come up with some fun ways to, you know, like you said, maintain that social engagement um, and learning uh, different games on Zoom and virtual games. Like um, there's a virtual bingo that we use quite often. Uh, or virtual Jeopardy, and it might have different categories like feelings or goal setting or teen topics. Um, so that's real interactive and the groups really like playing those different games. Um, they're really fun. Uh, sometimes we do like a show and tell or a scavenger hunt. So you're sharing with the group virtually. And so everyone is engaged and getting up and moving around, you know, going to get an item for show and tell and coming back instead of just sitting and staring at the screen. I think those types of things yeah. really help get everyone, you know, invested. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah. It's better to learn if it's fun. Oh, a hundred percent. And I just want to share one thing to our listeners. I, I was lucky enough to attend one of the adult support groups um, in the evenings. This was several months ago, but um, like Dr. Raviccio was saying, it's, it's a beautiful thing seeing not just people get supported by, you know, a single therapist, but almost to see people have the support of, you know, six or seven different people um, who are taking part, in the, taking part in the group. And 
seeing how some of the advice that's that's provided or just you know the common experiences that are shared that that seems to really create a very enriching experience. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you were able to witness that. Jennifer Smith, um, our licensed mental health counselor, does a lovely job running our adult support group, and I think that you know that's a really special thing to witness and to see the support and that sometimes that you know the group we're they're facilitating. And the group members, like I said, take it and it's just, um, it's lovely to watch the different leadership roles evolve and, you know, the confidence and being able to support someone else and, you know, everyone learns together. So that's group, group strategies are one of my favorite things to witness too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, uh, your uh, answers to our questions, um, you know, they have been uh, very, very valuable. And thank you for taking your time to uh, be a part of this program again. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on with us. Yes. Thank you. I didn't think it was possible to outdo the first one, but <laughs> it sounds like we might have done that. it's fun you know in the first one we were sort of new to the pandemic here we are we're still you know um managing surviving thriving we hope you know trying to support one another learning new skills so look at how far we've come you know I think some of the things that we've learned like I said through the virtual opportunities we have to take that and you know look at that as an opportunity for the future to to provide more services to people you know, all over the world. And um, so we've come a, a long way in one year, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, we definitely have. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Thank you again. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Our next interview will be featuring an individual that is vitally important to not only the Four Autism podcast, but also the Els for Autism Foundation core missions. This individual was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome in 1994 and has since been a terrific advocate for the condition, as well as a role model for individuals with autism and neurotypical individuals alike. He graduated from Florida Atlantic University, go Owls, cum laude with a BA in communication while supporting his education with a full-time position at a large retail firm. Shortly after, he became a member of the board of FLAPSE, or the Association for People Seeking Employment First, an organization that seeks opportunities for individuals with disabilities. In 2015, he hit the ground running at the Els for Autism Foundation and has never stopped moving. He he served as the DJ of the opening ceremony, has helped to start a social group for adults with autism, has written numerous blog articles, started a mental health support group, and has even co-hosted a podcast, a successful podcast, I might add. He is also a video game and creative writing extraordinaire, a travel and food connoisseur, and a champion of mental health advocacy. Last but not least, he is the most interesting man in the world. Here is my co-host of the podcast, 
and very good friend. Please welcome Merrick Egbert. If we had uh, one of those applause tracks, that would be golden right now. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we don't have the budget for that. So I'll just pretend that the applause that I'm hearing right now is uh, coming out of some kind of a machine. Or your co-host. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Okay, Merrick. So I'll start the questions off here. First of all, could you speak about some of the keys to your success and overcoming adversity as an adult with Asperger's syndrome? So I think that it is always important that if you're unable to, you know, help yourself out at an early age and you have difficulties in certain areas that seem to be, you know, a little bit beyond your control or so you think. Um, I think that one of the uh, important uh, keys to my success is having uh, parents who cared, parents who were willing to uh, do whatever it took to make sure that whatever they would, uh, that they would approach anything that I happen to have difficulties with with uh, grace and dignity and that they would be able to assess strategies in order to make my life more bearable, more tolerable, and to put me on the road to success. Um, my father has always pretty much been by my side even though we've had some difficulties together in the past, um, I think that there are moments where he maybe realizes um, exactly what bonds us together, but what he feels like he can help me with if I have any difficulties. Um, he likes to be my uh, spokesperson when I have difficulties uh, speaking or standing up for myself or self-advocating. Um, my mother has said before that um, she has tried to, with the assistance of my father, uh, has tried to expose me to so many different points of interest so that I wouldn't be bored and I would find the things that would be needed in order to make sure that I would uh, have things to reflect on, to uh, acknowledge. Um, while they have acknowledged limitations that I've had in the past, they are more free-flowing than what, you know, you would expect of parents that I would have because um, while they worry and they get concerned about me, they also understand that I'm independent, I'm my own adult, uh, what I do on my own time, what I do by myself is what I do by myself. And they aren't basically um, tearing up at the fact 
that I'm living in an apartment by myself. I would also like to say that it was also very, um, it was also helpful that I got to see individuals when I was growing up who would help me with things like my motor skills. Um, I would have people within the educational system who would be uh, of good assistance, of great assistance when it came to my speech impediments, uh, TH sounds, when it came to uh, being a new kid in a new town, um, to even figuring out how the chaotic uh, atmosphere of the cafeteria could be avoided uh, by allowing me to do my homework and to do other things beyond uh, being in such a wild, nasty place as the school cafeteria in high school. Um, it, it, I also will have to say that music played a major part because when I needed ways to express myself, when I felt bored, when I felt instinctual, when I felt like I needed to find my own way through, music played a key part in allowing me to understand and to adapt to things that I felt I had little to no control over. Um, it allowed me to look at what a future could be like. It allowed me to uh, be more successful, especially with people uh, who I was around. Um, also, my high school uh, psychologist, who was um, very important in establishing a therapeutic role whenever I would have difficulties with other people and difficulties with transitions or things that would impact many other individuals with Asperger's. Uh, she was very, very helpful in that way, in that regard. Uh, Dr., I believe her, her title was Dr. Rash. Um, and if she ever listens to this or someone knows who she is, I would like to give her from afar a great amount of thanks for not only allowing me to find more of myself uh, in high school, but also to allow me a feeling of greater consistency whenever I would hit the bumps I would hit in my last two years of high school. Um, and also, of course, the friends that I've made along the way. Um, it's, it's really, the question is, is the world a cruel place? Yes, it can be a cruel place, but it's not a cruel place everywhere. And it's not a cruel place of everyone. You have to find your people. You have to find your uh, calling. You have to find your standing. Not everyone is nasty. Not everyone is cruel and callous. There are people out there who will look at you as one of their own or look at you as being a part of the tribe, no matter what you have. So you've got to look for those people. And that is indeed very important. You've got to have a creative way to express yourself. You've got to look for people who could be friends of yours. You've got to 
look for good family members and you just gotta make sure that you persist in the ability to to understand and acknowledge parts of yourself that you find to be uh you know knowledge bases that can allow you to live your life with greater satisfaction and sincerity yeah that's your your answer is so interesting and a lot of the different keys to your success it sounds like they cover multiple domains spanning from your family life and the support you had from your parents as well as your peers and some of your instructors and then i also thought it was really cool that you gave a shout out to your high school psychologist and it just goes to show any professionals in the field who are listening the kind of impact that you can have on someone's life just by being supportive and you know being and, and caring about their well-being So I'll move on here. Uh, Merrick, what is some advice you would give to adolescents and young adults for overcoming teasing and bullying that they may experience and then also striving towards their goals? What I would say to those individuals is to not pay, is that not paying attention to these uh, types of people is impossible. A lot of people like to say you can just ignore them or you cannot pay attention to them. But that is very, very difficult, especially if you have autism, because perseveration, um, hyper-focusing, you know, you, you will take one person and their bullying power, and that may become magnified. That may become of a much more greater level and so in what i would do is if i had to deal with uh i i did have to deal with bullying and teasing years upon years ago in uh, elementary school when it came to high school what I realized is that many of those individuals who were teasing and bullying me in the past did so because their maturity levels were so low at the time. People mature in different ways. You know, uh, if it's someone who does things out of a feeling of benign or banal bullying or teasing, they do it not just out of insecurity, but they do it out of um, immaturity. And so a good thing to think about is to wait for them to grow up. And if they cannot grow up or if the teasing and bullying is such a strong problem that then you cannot really ignore it, you have to figure out a way to solve it. And I wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, that you have to solve it really through force, unless that is the only way out of doing it. Otherwise, um, you, you would have to, 
I guess what I would say is that um, is that if it is so important and so detrimental, I would perhaps figure out a way to remain anonymous and to take it up to people who matter. But if it's just basically, um, and to, to form an alliance with other people who may have also been bullied or teased for the same exact things, um, people can be stronger in groups. So if you form an alliance with other people who, like, let's say they have, you know, the same difficulties you have, then it gets a little bit tougher for bullies to go after you if you're in a bigger group. And um, another way to do it is to show off your intelligence, you know? Um, what, what I mean by that is that um, if someone, you know, makes fun of you or they think that you're this way or that way, um, a good way to go against them is to show off your intelligence, you know, to uh, ace any of the tests that you get in school or to go for that greater promotion or to challenge yourself to be the best person you can be, to um, live in your own world, live in your own, you know, place of peace and comfort, build up a sanctuary, um, create your own written expression of what it is like that you're going through. Do not, and also, I would encourage um, that mental health is also a very strong component, you know, um, that could be a great shield. If you're able to get the kind of treatment that could allow you to redirect your thinking about all of this, then all the teasing and bullying would just become blunted. You just need to create that kind of bulletproof armor out of your intelligence, your alliances with other people, um, your ability to see things from a different perspective, your ability Maybe not to ignore, but to basically rationalize it in a way that makes a lot of sense and makes a lot of logical sense so that, you know, it's not that you ignore or don't ignore, it's that whatever hits, you understand completely where it's coming from. And so with that in mind, you, you don't feel confused you don't feel like you're misunderstanding something yeah which will help with your mental health
it will really help with your mental health. Like I said before, I've had people tease me and bully me in the past. And when I, I guess when I realized that they were doing these things, not because, you know, that they were, um, it, that, that it wasn't going to be something that would last forever with these individuals, because eventually I would see them much later and they would be completely different people. No one is the same forever. And I think that that's all, you know, do you forgive someone for what they've done? And it really depends on what they've done. But if they were acting very irascible, um, you know, and years later, their maturity crept up to them, I think that maybe you should, um, you know, think in the future. You know, you can forgive that person. It will take a lot of strength to do so, but believe me, I think that it's always a good, wise state of mind to believe that not everyone is the same forever and that um, people sometimes do grow out of bullying and teeth. Yeah, I really like your answers there. One thing I'd I just want to quickly highlight was when you said that, you know, one way to counter bullying is to show off intelligence. And I think personally, a great way to do that is, you know, we're saying it is important to deal with the conflict and make sure that action is taken so that you don't have to continue to experience the bullying. But at the same time, um, you can control how you internalize it. And, you know, showing that it's not something that bothers you um, or that, you know, you, you understand that it's actually the bully reflecting some of their own issues. You know, that's a, that's a great sign of intelligence right there. Yeah. Or basically, you know, like I, I would say, you know, if someone believes or, you know, I guess in a way, if someone were to think that you're highly unintelligent because of, you know, the way you talk, the way you move, the way you, you know, you show that you process things, if you're able to completely gobsmack the bully with this kind of knowledge or intelligence or ideas or whatever, that the bully cannot even uh, understand or commit to, then you've won something over the bully. You've, sure. you've basically shown that there's another side of you that the bully cannot understand or does not like what the bully sees. It's, uh, I think that part of it comes from this, idea in the past where somehow people seem to like to think that if you have autism you're unintelligent and my thought about that is is that well if you have autism you could basically say things about different subjects you can talk about you know your special interests and how well versed and how knowledgeable you are and that whole bizarre stereotype can completely be dismantled you know anyone who basically comes up to you and says well 
you 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 are autistic, so you must be, you know, this or that. Well, then you go over and you completely trounce that perception based on your own intelligence. Because you know, just because you're autistic doesn't mean that you're unintelligent. It's a complete fabrication. Absolutely. So one of your other positions is the, the chair of our advisory board. Could you tell us a little bit uh, more about what our advisory board is and what is your role as the chair comprise of? So I think it was in 2018 when I was on a call that had um, John Elder Robeson a uh, very well-known celebrity within uh, self-advocacy circles. He was speaking about, he was asking us whether or not we had an advisory board. And it never really occurred to us before about having an advisory board because usually an organization that handles autism doesn't usually have an advisory board. Um, you know, as big of an organization as Autism Speaks is, when it came to self-advocacy, they uh, were not exactly uh, too into the game uh, until a little bit recently. That's not a bad thing, in my opinion. It's just the way things are, you know. I'm not going to criticize an organization or foundation for not having that in its mind at the time because you just never know if that's not exactly the model standard or the template of things, you know, that's not exactly going to occur to you. So it was decided from then on because what we like to do is we like to not just, you know, help individuals, parents, you know, um, sisters, brothers of individuals with autism. We also really, really like to show and to express our interest in the wider um, autistic population or population with autism. Um, because it's not just because of me, but because if you're just, it, it's that whole expression, nothing about us without us. And so if you, if you basically look at every single angle of things, then that makes you a much more successful organization, particularly if you call yourself a one-stop shop. So shortly after that conversation was had, we decided, well, you know, we might as well have our advisory board and I would be the chairperson. So I went along and I looked at all these different individuals and we recruited people and we, we started a little bit small. We recruited a bunch of uh, professionals and people who, you know, they would either have won the Autism Spectrum Award or their visibility was very high with us. As the years have gone by though, it has transformed from that to a wide diverse range of, of 
ideas, insights, thoughts, um, you know, all kinds of uh, opinions about things. And it has gone from, you know, talking about a few things here and there to having a say in our culture and the overall culture of things and in um and also in 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 the way we um work with the outside world especially with the outside world of self-advocacy we have our members of our advisory board uh participate in our conferences or they have meetups during our all in autism events which we do uh which we have done pretty much every year so they aren't just there as figureheads they are a major part of the way we do things a major part of the way we process things and a major part of the way we impact not only ourselves but also the outside world as I've said before, because, you know, it is up to the people with voices. Um, and this is kind of literal, actually. It is up to the people with the voices to give the kind of uh, signifiers about the voiceless or to step in to talk in favor of the voiceless and to talk for the voiceless. So it's been such a major part of my, I guess you can say self-advocacy career that this exists and that I exist as chair of the board. Now my role as chair is basically this, I'm, the head of the board, I don't really influence decision making, I don't influence policy, but I help bring everyone together. And I help uh, communications between members, I help uh, communications between board members and the uh, foundation. Um, we are talking about how our advisory board members will be for our next on autism event, and that will be pretty cool. Um, but it's, it's really as an advocate for our uh, self-advocacy board, for our advisory board. And I start the meetings, I help write the agenda, I help make sure that things are manageable, and I try to support the group, the board members when I can. And they are all very, very dynamic, very intelligent, very great people. And it doesn't matter what position they have in this world, they are all very, very great people. And I am, it's a pleasure knowing each and every one of them. Well, I think that it's a stellar board and you are certainly the right guy for the job uh, as leader of it. 
So, so now bringing, bringing both ideas together. So I mentioned, you know, that Merrick is a, a great advocate for mental health. So how does the advisory board promote greater mental health functioning? So after reading, and I sound like a broken record when I say this, but after reading in a different key, so from such a while ago, um, and knowing about how little the thoughts of individuals with autism really factored into decision-making and thoughts and policy-making and all that. Um, it, it was very, very um, unfortunate to read about all of that because, like I said to Dr. Riviccio earlier, um, you know, there was a time when if someone happened to have autism, even someone as intelligent as Donald Gray Triplett, someone as mature, as polite as he was, there were, there were all these assertions of sending him to an institution of basically blocking himself out from the world. And unfortunately, um, that is what happened to many people back in those days. I believe that there is even talk when Temple Grandin, when Dr. Temple Grandin was growing up, there was talk about her mother sending her to an institution too. And so for people who are trying their darndest to speak, to show their, you know, actual intelligence, to show their health. Um, if you're basically uh, locking them away and keeping them from being able to, you know, showcase their wants and needs in a proper way, it can have a deteriorating effect on someone's mental health where they don't feel like that they're a part of the world. They don't feel like that they're, you know, as much of a success as anyone else. They don't feel like they're unique in an interesting way. They feel like they're unique in a rotten way. And that is of a very debilitating part of the history of treating people with differences in neurology. Um, and so, you know, the question is, if I was born much earlier in time, would I have been considered for the institution? I have no idea, but it definitely would have made me feel a lot different than I do right now, where I want to be a part of the world. I want to be like everyone else. I want to be, you know, maybe even better than other people. Okay. And if I'm just sitting in an institution, then that's not going to, you know, help things. So I think having an actual advisory board, you're not just, besides giving some of our board members, you know, the Autism Spectrum Award, which is great and all, but also saying, well, you can influence our decision making. 
you can influence the way we see people. And you may have difficulties or the like, but we're not going to see these as much difficulties as your way of expressing yourself, your way of putting things together, and your way of moving things together. And so some of the board members that we have, you know, they have all their different things attached to them. And when I listen to them, when I hear them talk, and when I talk to them, it feels like we're all part of some great community here. It, all, it feels like we're all, if we have ever felt, you know, underused or underutilized because of our skills or abilities or whatever it is, you know, it is. Every session, every moment, every meeting is like a healing process because you're having people who may not have been used to actually having any kind of control over anything or any kind of executive position on anything actually being relied upon to give their own executive opinions on things. I have never had an executive position before this. And so being the chair of the advisory board allows me to have an executive opinion on things when, uh, and, and to do it with credibility, with complimentary, um, you know, visibility. And so that, that allows me to feel like my opinion matters, my voice matters, no matter how difficult it is no matter how hard it is for me to say anything, to, to do anything, it allows me to feel like my difficulties are not as much my difficulties as just a part of my character. And it allows me to understand things maybe in certain ways that maybe other people may not understand. So, yeah, I think that that's all very, very important. Yeah, it goes back to the point that different neurological traits and different perspectives and opinions, these are, these are valuable to the world and they shouldn't be locked away. They shouldn't be institutionalized. And, you know, it's, it's amazing what you guys have accomplished so far in, in terms of not only autism, but also just spreading awareness on mental health and helping everyone to feel a little bit more, um, you know, accepting and empowered in what they're going through. So we're, we're going to shift gears here. I've got a bonus question now. Let's have a little bit of fun. So it's no longer a secret that Merrick has been to all 50 states um in the country and this is something he just recently accomplished maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and also list your top five favorite states for our listeners okay so i actually got back from a visit to rhode island because that was the one state where i traveled through but i never went into any residential area so going to Providence was a very nice experience. As far as the top five states, 
I love New Mexico. I've always liked the state. I think that it's uh, canyons and it's, uh, you know, it's Southwestern flair. The whole look of it is just really, really nice and unique and unusual. Um, you know, there's nothing quite like the solitude that approaches you when you're in New Mexico. You uh, travel along, you see canyons, you see, you know, all the red rock you could see. And then you see like a little uh, spot in the middle of nowhere where someone has like a little art studio. And it's just the thought is, is like, you know, uh, if, if that's the solitude you seek, then that is just perfection right there. You don't have to deal with anyone. You don't have to deal with anything. You can just be in that art studio, maybe have a little cot or whatever, uh, have some food or you go out and get some food or whatever. But you're basically, this is your life and you're living the life that you want to live. Um, I just really like that. I'm more of a Westerner in a sense. Um, I also really like Colorado. Um, later in this episode, I'll talk about my skiing experiences, but um, that's one of the reasons why I love Colorado. I also think that it has one of my favorite national parks, which is the Great Sand Dunes National Preserve, which I have as my desktop to lock and screen. Um, what it is, is that a lake, an ancient lake, completely dried up and it left all this sand. And so the sand formed into the largest sanding formation in, I believe, North America. And it's actually right across from the Rocky Mountains. So you see these Rocky Mountains, snow and everything, and then you see what looks like the Sahara right across from it, like you're, like you're looking at a film set where, where you know, it's, it's taking away the magic from the film set of Lawrence of Arabia. So it, it's just, it's a, outstanding. And I, I can't think of really anything bad to say that much about Colorado. Um, I also really enjoyed, um, let's see, I mean, I really like Louisville, Kentucky, um, but that's just, you know, one city in Kentucky. I, I really, really like that city. Um, I really liked uh, Indiana. Um, Indianapolis was a very distinctive city itself, uh, the way it's uh, made, the way it's styled. The way the city is arranged is kind of topsy-turvy. It's kind of twisty compared to other cities I've been in, but it has its own unique charm. And uh, stopping by Columbia, Indiana, to Columbus, Indiana, to go to this one ice cream place, I forget the name of it, but that was absolutely fantastic. I love Utah. Um, speaking of ice cream, I went to Park City and I really, really, really like Park City. Um, didn't go skiing there, but 
I, I felt like when I walked into this ice cream place in Park City, I guess I love ice cream. Um, I felt like I was there attending the Sundance Film Festival. But I really like Utah. I just, I like the people there. Um, I really like Salt Lake City. Um, overall, outside of maybe the cuisine, I just really, really enjoyed Utah. Um, hmm. Of course, I love Florida. You know, you go to there all you these go. other states and it's so cold, it's so dreary and everything. And then you come back here. And even though the temperature could dip into the 50s and the 60s, you still feel like, you know, it could be a lot worse elsewhere. Plus, it has got one of my favorite, my, my favorite airport, uh, PBI, Palm Beach International. I absolutely love PBI. Um, and it's got really, really good restaurants. You can basically go anywhere in the state and you'll find something different. You'll find something new, you know, and with the same weather it is everywhere around the state. It's like, well, you know, if you're not satisfied with this part of Florida, you can move to another part of Florida. It's, it's not like uh, Rhode Island or Delaware. You can, you can move anywhere along the state and have a different experience. So I, I really, really like Florida. Um, <clears throat> you may be asking me about my home state of Maryland. Um, I, I really like uh, the home state of Maryland. I like the seafood there. I like the history there. Um, I love Lito's Pizza, the best pizza ever. But I wouldn't necessarily say that Maryland is um, a great state. I don't know if I would put it in my top five. I mean, I love Annapolis, probably one of my favorite cities. But I don't know if I put it within my top five. Um, you know, it's it's really, if you want to look for my top five, um, maybe Wyoming too. I, I, I would have to say go west as the old uh, saying goes, go west and you'll probably find states that would fit into my top five because those are generally the states I gravitate to the most and those are the states that are the most interesting to me. Um, although, okay, so Maine would be in my top five. And Maine is kind of like a Western Eastern state in that it has wide open spaces. Um, it's got excellent food. Um, and it's just, it's very scenic. Uh, there's a lot of solitude you can get there. And because it is so far north and so far to the east, you, you really do feel like at some points you feel like you're standing like close to the end of the world when you're there. It's, um, it's just a really, really cool state. And I, I love Maine. Um, I went skiing there, Sunday River. It's very, very cool. Um, just I love Maine. So I guess if I had to pick a top five, it would probably be like Maine, New Mexico, Colorado, um, Florida. Just can't really think of another state that would go into that mix. Oh, maybe Oklahoma, maybe, but I don't know. I don't know if I would consider Oklahoma. I, 
really like Texas. You know, there there are so many states I've been to, um, but sometimes it's more about the cities and the towns in those states than it is about the actual states. So I guess well, that would have to be my answer. I mean, I also really like Arizona, but that would probably have to be my answer for now. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. West is the best. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of love for Florida given there, and I appreciate that. I, I'm with you. Anytime I, I take a trip, it's so nice to come back to Florida and be greeted by the warm embrace of the humidity and, you know, the sight of nice, luscious green palm trees. Well, considering that you're from Chicago, you know, what else can you say? <laughs> and I've been to Chicago and I like it, but you know, the Chicago winters are infamous. So you come from the Chicago winters to Florida, that's basically like being in a lobster. That that's like being a lobster in boiling water. Oh my gosh, what happened to me? I'm melting, I'm melting. Yeah, in a good way. In a good way. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Mary. That was, that was a great interview and lots of meaningful answers for our listeners. Yeah, but they don't always... After enough of my rambling and everything, I'm sure that they want to move to something else. So, as always, it is time to go over today in the world of autism. And you'll hear a little bit of a back and forth between Nate and me in a similar way like the interview we did. Um, but you'll get to hear fantastic research-oriented stories that can, uh, what can I say, can increase the mind level. I like it. Let's provide some food for the brains. So uh, first I'd like to highlight a story on oxytocin and autism spectrum disorder and a little bit of the research that's been done on this and also the possibility of intranasal oxytocin as a, a treatment for some social characteristics of autism. So first of all, in terms of hormonal mechanisms that are involved in ASD, oxytocin, which is known as the love or social hormone, has received a high degree of attention from researchers and clinicians alike. Oxytocin, which is mainly produced in the hypothalamus, a part of the brain that is kind of like um, a hormone initiator. It's the hormone center uh, or the, the part of the brain that's really vitally important in producing hormones. Um, but anyways, oxytocin promotes trust and connection it moderates threat response, and it supports mother-child bonding. A common finding has been that children with ASD appear to have low blood levels of oxytocin. Additionally, severity of symptoms in autism is also higher in those with lower levels of that blood uh, concentration of oxytocin. This has led to the examination of oxytocin delivered intranasal as an autism therapeutic approach. Although mechanistically, this treatment makes sense, the results have been mixed. 
with some studies finding overall improvement in social and behavioral functioning, as well as more cooperation in a variety of social games. However, a large 2021 study found no significant effect of intranasal oxytocin on aspects of functioning. So why the inconsistency? First of all, it seems that there's been a lot of differences in the methodologies used in studies. For example, the 20, in the 2021 study, the outcome measure was social withdrawal, which some believe was not a sensitive enough measure to fully capture the effects of oxytocin on various social domains. Aside from differences in outcome measures though, others have expressed concern that intranasal oxytocin may not be able to effectively reach the oxytocin uh, moderating neurons in key brain areas that are involved in social behavior. So oxytocin um, could be involved, you know, it's involved in a lot of different things. And the concern is that it's not able to reach some of the key brain areas that are involved in social behavior. I feel there has still been enough promising results to support continued investigation of oxytocin, um, of intranasal oxytocin as a therapeutic tool for autism. Larger studies are definitely needed as well as careful attention to dosage, frequency of sessions, and also the use of objective outcome measures. Merrick, what are your thoughts on this article and the potential of this therapy? Well, I do believe that um, it does make sense to say that there is a difference in the levels of oxytocin. Um, but it also is kind of a hard thing to kind of wrap the head around because um, these types of things, okay, when coming back to my diagnosis, in the past, I'm, I may have been considered to be too trustworthy of other people, or, or too trusting of other people is what I mean. <laughs> and I would have had a very strong connection with my mother, um, you know, and um, so it's kind of difficult to say exactly. I, I would actually have been curious as to how much oxytocin is in my, um, is in the way my, my brain functions. Um, I, I also um, will have to uh, inquire because it says mother-child bonding. What is, the, um, what is the type of thing that you would find that has to do with father-child bonding or maybe the other parent-child bonding? Is there such a chemical? Is there such a, you know, a hormone that, that yeah. exists? And what is it called? Yeah, that's a great question. Oxytocin, you know, it's important not just in mother-child bonding, but also father-child bonding. In fact, 
males who who have at least one child on average they're found to have higher levels of oxytocin um, in their blood than you know males who have not yet entered fatherhood so um, it's also you know it's also important for that relationship and then to backtrack to your other point that you made i'm really happy you made it you know questioning whether this might be a suitable treatment for you um, I, I think you could argue that a lot of the mixed results and findings or, you know, maybe a lack of the, the efficacy when it comes to this treatment could be that it's, it could only be beneficial for some, you know, a subset of cases within the spectrum. And, you know, on top of that, the spectrum, uh, and on, on top of that, you know, given the the autism is a complex condition. It's, uh, it's unlikely that any, you know, single medication or any single hormone is going to fully, um, errat, you know, obliterate, uh, or, or reduce any symptoms that are being experienced. You know, it's like, we've talked about a lot. It's, it's about, you know, having multiple influences, um, not just, uh, medication, but also therapy possibilities and educational supports. Yeah. I would also ask, because we know that there can be differences in men and women with autism, um, is it all across the board of oxytocin? Is oxytocin the same in males and females with autism? Or is there something that the research study is not exactly telling us? Or did they not decide upon that as being a part of the function of the research? Because I would think that oxytocin is probably a little bit higher in women than it is in men. Yes. And I think that, that if that isn't a part of the study or isn't a part of the research, that it's not being as effective as it could be. Yeah, I think because this is still a newer development, they haven't gotten to the point yet where, you know, aside from uh, one meta-analysis, which is a really large compilation of studies on this, there still hasn't been a ton of research on this topic. And traditionally, just to point this out to our listeners, you know, there is a bias in a lot of research studies on autism where, you know, there's so much higher of a concentration of male participants. It's sometimes difficult to tease apart, you know, how things differ between males and females with autism. And I'll have to dive a little more into this, but to my knowledge, at least, they haven't done a great job of controlling for uh, that key variable of gender yet. Yeah, so I believe that overall, it's it's a decent article. And, you know, I think that any type of therapy, you know, nothing should be off the table. But I also think that because the study is kind of a little bit incomplete, um, that makes it a little bit more difficult to give uh, greater conclusive uh, 
insight into what a study like this can do, but I do really appreciate you sharing this article, though. I think that um, overall, much of it is relevant. Much of it is, uh, you know, uh, helpful. And much of it is supported. But unless we know, you know, unless we feel like there's greater, uh, I guess, greater, um, a greater solid feel about the whole thing, then, then it's a question as to whether or not people should um, wait until, you know, we have other variables mixed into the, um, into the process like gender. And yeah. so I, I, like I said, I think that it's a very, uh, it's a very interesting article. Um, but it does have a few holes to it. Yeah, and there's a lot of articles coming out on oxytocin and, and discussion forums, and it's it's starting to enter into the mainstream without, you know, the rigorous research processes that would probably lead to a lot of confidence in in using it as a treatment. So I think it is valuable for us to have a discussion on it on this show. I definitely do agree with you on that. Okay. Um, so I think you'll like this next one, Merrick. Of course. This, this topic is on the possibility of a video game as an intervention for um, a key aspect of autism. So first of all, there have been years of rigorous debate as to whether playing video games is beneficial or detrimental to a child's development, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a minute. Um, that's, and first, I would like to highlight the findings of a creative intervention that was recently tested at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, Go Badgers. The researchers developed an innovative balance game through the Nintendo Wii platform that utilize a second-by-second -second feedback loop to reinforce improvements as they occurred within the game. So those in the intervention group were asked to hold various yoga and tai chi poses while standing on a balance board. And at the same time, an image on the screen would get brighter the longer that they held the pose. And when they lost the pose, the image would get dimmer. So it would be... Um, a negative reinforcement. When the sessions ended, participants increased their average hold time across poses by approximately 36 seconds, which was a significant finding. Additionally, caregiver reported symptoms were significantly improved in the intervention uh, condition relative to controls. Last but not least, pre and post MRI scans actually showed more connectivity in the motor cortices in participants following the intervention. So I really like this study because they used not only a self-report or a parent report measure, but they also used MRI as a tool, you know, as a really objective tool to look at how this intervention could, could improve balance and actually you know, change brain circuitry to some degree. So Merrick, 
what are your thoughts on the use of video games in children um, and as an intervention tool? So I think that um, a video game can be uh, very useful because it, what it does is you have to look at it in kind of a, a meta level, as they would say. And I know that that makes you sound like a pretentious hipster, but I'll still <laughs> say stuff like that. Um, anyways, um, a video game can serve to teach you, you know, of success and failure without feeling like you can take it personally. Um, it can teach you uh, interactions and interactivity um, between different people. Uh, it can teach you, you know, allow you to feel like you're, you, you're a superhero or whatever you do can be very useful um, in a way. Um, but the biggest thing I think that video games can teach you is empathy. Um, what a video game basically has you do in many a times is to take yourself out of the equation and to put yourself in the mind of someone else. You can be, you know, uh, let's say an office worker. You can be a plumber who loves mushrooms and who loves Italian food. <laughs> you, you can be a blue hedgehog that wears a rat, that, that's uh, fast talking, loves chili dogs, and is kind of a nuisance, but saves the world over and over again. You can play a game that allows you from a first person perspective to learn about how cancer affects a family. You can learn about, you can try to get as close as you can to understanding historical events. Um, because what it does is it takes you and it puts you in, you're the player. Movies can't exactly do that because movies have to use storytelling narratives and ways to try to get you to understand, to know, to empathize with the character using all these elements. A video game doesn't need to do it as much. A video game, especially if it is very immersive, if it is able to do things almost picture perfect to a movie, the, the, the potential of the video game is to allow people to go, that's that other person's perspective. This is how we manage things in teams. This is how we manage things in groups. This is what this other person feels like. This is what depression does to someone. This is what OCD does to someone. This allows us to understand what it's like to go through these things because this is how our controls are. And overall, I think that, that is very, very important. 
I also do believe that motion control, um, especially if you have problems with anxiety, with going out there and uh, embracing the world in such a massive way, it gets so highly stimulating, you want to be inside. Um, you don't have to buy a Nordic track for $2,000. You just get a $200 or $300 machine. You get a copy of Ring Fit Adventure, which comes with a ring itself. And you go through these uh, RPG elements, which means that you're not just progressing in real life, you're progressing in the game. And you try to work out that way, which is a lot cheaper than stand than being on the Nordic track, which is which can be too big for a small apartment and too expensive. So I think that when people talk about video games, they may talk about the improvement of motor skills, of hand-eye coordination, um, because of some of the things you have to do in these games. But there's also a psychological element that not that many people touch on unless they want to blame violent video games for certain things. Mm -hmm. And this psychological element is empathy, as I said before, which is the ability to see things from another person's point of view. And when you play a game, what else are you doing but seeing things from that other person's point of view? It doesn't matter how crazy it is. It doesn't matter what the graphics are. It doesn't matter what the character is. You're able to see things from that person's point of view because that's that's what the game wants you to do. There is this game that came out called Sangua's Sacrifice, a very well-known game. And the big thing that people were talking about was how this uh, middle-level game could become as big as a AAA game, which is like the biggest games in the business. But it's also a tale of PTSD and depression. And because it's a 3D game and you're so deeply entrenched into the story of this character, it allows you to understand what it's like to go through PTSD, to go through depression. Now, you can tell me any kind of movie that's been made that gives you those same kinds of elements. And I can tell you that that is really good, but until you have a controller and until you see something right in front of your screen that allows you to feel these kinds of things, a movie may not have as much of an impact as actually being that person on on a control screen itself. So basically, I think that there's a lot of advantages, but empathy, I think it's one of the biggest. Yeah, that's a brilliant take. It reminds me too of the use of virtual reality in therapeutic contexts and video games, they can be very immersive, like you're saying, where you really do get in the mindset of the character um, and, and yeah, in terms of virtual reality, there are video games, but also just, you know, these alternative uh, experiences and dimensions that in terms of something like PTSD, you know, people can, can revisit um, 
things that are very fearful to them in an environment that feels real, but is not entirely real. And, you know, there, there's a lot of exciting um, opportunity in that field. Yeah, there's this game, this virtual reality game that uh, tackles uh, acrophobia or fear of heights. And oh. it's very popular. And basically, I think it puts you on top of a building or something. And you have to deal with whatever acrophobia, acrophobia you have. And it's not real. It's just a virtual reality thing. But, you know, who knows if that could allow people to understand what people with acrophobia go through. Because yeah. I do have a fear of heights myself. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay, I'll pass it on to you now for a couple fascinating human interest stories. Okay. So since it is the new year, it's good to go over your new year's resolutions. Maybe it was to put off some fatty foods, take off some weight. Maybe it was to donate more to charity. Whatever ambitious plan you had. For this podcast, I'd like to illustrate 10 new year's resolutions you could do support the autism community. The first one is to learn more from families and individuals with autism. One of the resolutions from a source I read just told people to crack the books that sometimes that just isn't good enough. Getting actual lived experiences from families and individuals with autism could be more invaluable than some book or manual that you could read. Not discounting those though, especially if you have no way of knowing of any other families or individuals with autism. The second one is to support local micro-businesses, autism-friendly businesses, or products made by those who are autistic. Whether it be a movie, a piece of artwork, music, something like our Sea of Possibilities, or We Are Foodies micro-businesses, or even a big company that supports those on the spectrum like Google, your support matters. Third one is to try to foster a sense of solidarity and belonging to the people you know with autism. Singles, mixers, dances, the right gesture or statement, Anything that will allow the people you know with autism to not feel lonely will be appreciated within the right kind of sensitivities. One of my resolutions is to have a stable relationship this year. And while it has been impossible in the past, I feel like there may be a sense that the possible does exist. A fourth one is to find an event that celebrates autism. Every Autism Awareness Month in April, we have something called All on Autism, which lately has had a 5K attached to it. We invite people to participate with the show and see the talents of the autism community through performances, micro-businesses, book speeches, and having a fundraise around our campus. The fifth one is to support mental health and anti-bullying initiatives. A good amount of the autism population has had to deal with bullying, and many suffer from mental health problems too. If you can stand up to reduce any bullying in the schoolyard or the workplace, and I'll talk to people who have autism to see if you can give them encouragement and reinsurances, things may get better. Six, get the diagnosis. If you have suspicions or concerns, the diagnosis may help set you free and allow you a deeper understanding of yourself. It could also allow you greater solidarity of a community you never knew you belonged to, seeking help in ways that you now know you can. And the feeling that you are not damaged, just different. Seven, Help foster a series of, internet, of interest searching for the person you know who has autism. Sometimes a person with autism may not have the same interests that you have. 
Sometimes it may not even be in the first three potential hobbies a person could have. Usually someone with autism who has an affinity for an interest will stick with that for life. Perhaps building an intense desire and passion for it that could become a livelihood. Eight, build bridges. Some of our self-advocates cannot imagine wanting to heal or cure those with autism and can get offended by that. They also find any terminology that seems to imply that autism is a disease or an illness or that we have to feel sorry for people who have it is also insulting. Yet some of our parents have children who they really love, but they feel like autism has robbed them of many different things that they feel like the self-advocacy community either doesn't understand or purposely overlooks. What would be good is if more self-advocates meet with parents of those with profound autism, and more parents of those with profound autism would meet self-advocates, and a greater understanding can happen. Nine, coming out of the neural closet, but in a way that it is safe and comfortable for you. If you just had your diagnosis or got one years ago, make sure that the people around you know, and possibly the world. It will allow people to get a broader and greater understanding of the condition and what it means to have it. Plus, greater exposure to people with a condition like autism breeds greater tolerance of others with it too. 10, take a survey, make a difference. As a major organization to help address the wants and needs of the autism community, it's important that we understand your thoughts and words related to certain hot button issues within the community itself. On our show notes, we have a survey for you all to fill out to lend your voice in speaking out. Nate, what would you add as New Year's resolutions to support the autism community? Well, Merrick, as usual, you took all the good points. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, this is a, an excellent list. I think it's probably been stated already, but my two big things would just be to, to seek out a volunteer opportunity to try to, you know, give your time to, you know, brightening the day of an individual with autism. I've seen so many um, great volunteers in our recreational programs, tennis, golf, you name it. And it's such a great experience, not only for the, you know, the participants that they're given, you know, someone else to learn from and to, to engage with, but also for the individual doing the volunteering who walks away from that experience, you know, with an enhanced knowledge uh, of what autism is all about and how, you know, just those are experiences that can really change um, a person a lot. And my next thing would just be take part in various events to promote autism awareness, the, all of the great events we offer at the foundation, um, the, the awe in autism, the, the 5k situation. Um, and then, you know, even something like the autism speaks walk. These are just, you know, if you're, if you want to be supportive of the autism community, then, you know, what better way to do it than to, to get out and, and donate your time and your support to, to these events. Well, thank you. Those are uh, fantastic other uh, resolutions to support the autism community. So on my second story, here in Florida, everything is pretty much flat and sunny. You come here to retire, play some golf, spend time on the beach, and catch some waves. Nothing as dangerous as mountain climbing or skiing, which makes my presence here even weirder. 
I'm not that much of a beach person. Between the beach and the mountain, I may pick the mountains, but I enjoy living here. Where I grew up in the state of Maryland, skiing was seen as something good and valuable, but there was hardly a reason to do it there. Our biggest mountain round top was the middling ski attraction, but snowboarding was a cool winter sport. My parents have had moments of athleticism, but my family overall could not find a physical activity to bond over. The first time I ever skied was in an adaptive ski program in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, which is probably called Alpine Meadows. Adaptive skiing is different from regular skiing in that it trains people with disabilities in order to allow them to learn how to ski, with a partner or two guiding you down the slope and helping on the cheerlift up. It started in 1942 when Franz Wendell of Austria broke his leg and used methods to allow himself to still enjoy the sport of skiing. After World War II, adaptive skiing boomed in popularity with returning veterans coming back to the slopes after spending so much time at war. In 1962 in Portland, Oregon, Lee Perry of the JC Ski Club started the first school for adaptive skiing for amputees. Ever since then, it has become a very popular national way to enjoy the sport even while being disabled. I was enrolled in adaptive skiing in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, which I kind of like because of my motor skills, because of my Asperger's syndrome. For many reasons, while it was a good launch ramp, it didn't stick its landing. I needed something more serious. It was in the late 90s. My parents and I decided to vacation in Colorado for the very first time in a little ski town known as Breckenridge. It was very pleasant, had a lot to do, but it also had an adaptive ski program. This program would be a life-changing experience for me. I learned about the different ways I could use the skis and while they could feel unwieldy, along with the heavy equipment, when done right, it felt like a blast. I would wedge properly snowshoe with my skis, actually found something that I could physically do that I was pretty good at. Plus it helped that I had good companions teaching me these things and a very attractive female instructor who many of the people in the program knew that I had the hot sport. <laughs> From there, I ended up taking ski vacation after ski vacation all over the country. I went back to Breckenridge where I got drunk on a quote-unquote virgin margarita, went to Pennsylvania, New York State, Vermont, I believe West Virginia, Maryland, and possibly other places I may have forgotten. Every time I would go with an adaptive skiing program, because it was because I didn't like skiing alone. I really like the company, and sometimes I can get rusty between vacations. My whole family got into it, sometimes taking ski vacations without me, but it was the one physical activity I liked the most and it got all of us excited. The last ski vacation I had was probably in 2003, a year before I moved down to Florida, and it was in Aspen, Colorado. I love snow mass and I really liked the town and the cabin we lounged at, but something within me may be unable to ski down that mountain without hurting, and I had to cancel my participation early because of it which could have been a form of altitude sickness. Because of so many things in my life after that, I put up my skis and didn't hit the slopes again until 2018 when I fell Maine for the first time. They did have an adaptive skiing program at Sunday River, which I spent two days in. The first day felt like old times, the banter, the jokes, the techniques and abilities that came back to me and the excellent food in the organizational house. However, the second time came something that has been haunting me for years. Doubt, the spiritedness, depression. I kept on falling because I didn't feel the interest or the confidence to push on through. Eventually, we had to cancel that early too. 
Well, there isn't a happy ending to this story. I was recently in Utah, went to the Alfingen Ski Museum, and in there is the Ski Hall of Fame. I took a look at a few profiles, and one of them was clear as day, a profile of Meech White, who I had never known before. In the, <clears throat> in the 80s, she helped start the National Ability Center, which became one of the largest adaptive skiing organizations in the world. <coughs> For the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympic and, and Paralympic Games, she was on the she was on the organizing committee as the 80 day as the 80 day Americans with Disabilities Act manager. Memories and thoughts came flooding through about my times on the slopes, and I felt that I had to share a little bit with you all here. So, Nate, have you ever skied before? Oh, first of all. Merrick, I, I actually didn't know this about you. And so this is a really fast, it's fascinating for me to hear about your history in this, this sport and, you know, great recreational activity. I also just want to say to the attractive, you know, ski instructor, if you're listening to this by some chance and, you know, you remember Merrick, you know, it'd be great if you could help him fulfill one of his resolutions for the new year. But <laughs> jokes aside. I do remember her name, okay? <laughs> I do remember her name. Joke, jokes aside, I have been snow skiing before. It's been, wow, it's been many years now since I was eight years old. Um, I went skiing a couple times in Northern Illinois and Wisconsin. I have never been out to the West coast for skiing specifically. And I would love to make that a uh, reality in the next couple of years. But I do want to say I thoroughly enjoy water skiing. So when you say that, you know, living in Florida, we're just coasting on Island time. Uh, water skiing is, can be fairly dangerous. Um, and it is very exciting. I've, I've taken some bad spills before, which, you know, unfortunately I don't have the highlights of, although I'm sure, you know, everyone would, would really enjoy seeing, but, um, I do like water skiing and I think skiing in general is a, a terrific recreational activity, especially with the beautiful scenery that you get to take in while you do it. I appreciate hearing about those black diamond runs on the water skis. <laughs> well, thank you for your uh, recap of your experiences. I did. Yes. I wasn't able to ski in Illinois or Wisconsin. I actually never knew that they had uh, skiing resorts in both places. <laughs> I maybe knew a little bit about Wisconsin, but. I may have also forgotten about it. On the West Coast, though, I've never skied Mammoth. And that's the big mountain in California that everyone, I guess, goes to ski there. But, you know, I've just never been there. Yeah, the ski resorts in the Midwest are not all that memorable. So that, that makes sense that you haven't heard of them. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a little bit higher than Round Top which is the skiing experience I had to deal with in Maryland. Yeah. Yeah, so. Very, very cool. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for gracing us with your presence, Nate. And um, before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again in February with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in general. Now, how do we end our show? One, two, three, four. I wish that I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly. Moth is a butterfly without any colors But what's beautiful is what's inside Maybe a moth is just a butterfly trying to hide Well I'm just a caterpillar crawling around Knowledge in my head but my feet on the ground Soon I'll be like an angel in the sky Like a butterfly I wish that I could fly so high like a butterfly I fly into the air so high oh like a butterfly like a bird I was meant to soar I will fly through the sunlight and even when it pours you can't stop me when I get a hold of the wind in the future your eyes will light up to think that I was once a poor caterpillar like a flock of butterflies I wish I could fly so high Oh, like a butterfly I'll fly into the air so high Just like a butterfly Fly, cause I'm a butterfly I'm flying through the air so high